Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Mahil Desmet, Finance Programme Lead at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, about financing a circular economy. Thinking about circular economy and new circular business models, it should be exciting, it should be sexy, it should be convenient. It's not about that moral obligation, that moral duty to do less or have less fun. It really is about redesigning how you create value. And if you do so, if you're regenerating natural capital through your business activity, we'd like to see more of that business activity because you're replenishing ecosystems, you're um, regenerating your soil. So welcome, welcome everyone. I've had a bit of a gap here, but it's really lovely to be back. Ryan, how are you? And um, more importantly, have you sorted out the Institute's Euro sweeps? <laughs> who did I get? <laughs> Not quite yet. I'm going to do it straight after this recording. I've just had the last team member sign up, so ready to go. But I'm I'm gutted that in my in my friend's sweepstake, I've got Netherlands and Croatia, because obviously the one you want is England, because football is obviously coming home. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> have, you, have you been watching? Um, not as much as I'd like. No, no, unfortunately, I um, hope to. But um, but talking of Europe, we're uh, heading to Belgium today for our guest. Do <laughs> you like what I did there? I mean, it's not our best segue, but uh, we'll, we'll roll with it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're excited to have Mahil join us today. He's the finance program lead at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is wholly committed to developing and promoting the circular economy. They run the world's leading network for the circular economy with many of the largest companies and financial institutions in the world, as well as working with the public sector and cities. Um, so really excited to have him on. Ryan, how are you feeling about having Mahil on? Well, I've actually added a new addition to my room since we recorded our last episode. It's a, I've got it here. Oh. It's a, it's a poster that always reminds you of the UN Sustainability Development Goals. And you can see here, number 12, circular economy. Just, just for those who can't see, it's a bit tragic, but Ryan is holding up a, <laughs> a bit of cardboard that has all the SDGs on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so I never forget them. <laughs> But, oh, but we'll we'll be talking to him here today specifically, of course, about how to finance the transition to a circular economy. So yes, I'm I'm very excited to speak to him. But enough from us. Uh, let's get him on. A very warm welcome, Michiel. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a it's a pleasure to be here today. Great, Michiel. We're so happy to have you on today to discuss everything about the circular economy. But before we launch into discussing the circular economy, can you share with us a background on the Ellen MacArthur Foundation? Why was it founded? What's its mission? And what does its work entail? Yep, happy to do so. So Ellen MacArthur was a professional yachtswoman. She actually broke uh, the the world record solo sailing around the globe. And as you can imagine, when you're in the middle of the Indian Ocean, um, you very much rely on the resources, the food, the energy that you take with me. So after her professional sailing career, she um, took that concept of finite resources and applied it to our economy. She looked into uh, the the theories around it and founded the Ellen MacArthur Foundation 10 years ago. So we are a UK-based charity. We have the mission to accelerate the transition to its circular economy. So we really work globally. The way we work is that we uh, try to um, inform decision makers 
from policymaking, from industry, from academia on the concept of a circular economy. We've got a large business network and from a financial uh, sector point of view, we, we work together quite closely with BlackRock, with Morgan Stanley and Intesa San Paolo. It would be great to sort of hear from you and sort of share with those listening you know, exactly what do we mean when we say a circular economy? Yeah, that's a great question because obviously different people interpret circular economy in different ways. So when I uh, try to explain the concept of a circular economy, I take um, typically the example of a linear economy and, and very particularly a light bulb. Roughly a century ago, light bulb manufacturers had become so good at manufacturing light bulbs, they worried that people would, uh, wouldn't have, have to buy new ones because they lasted too long. And, and by the way, this is not made up. It actually is. We have evidence of uh, this happening. So what happened is that leading manufacturers came together and they decided to design in um, failure, actually limit lamp life uh, below to what they were up to back in the days. And that's something that we're seeing across sectors in our current economy. Waste is not just a byproduct. It actually is designed into the business model. Now, fast forward to today, what we're seeing now is that there's, there's definitely hope and there is uh, the change. One of those leading manufacturers, Philips, is no longer offering, while well, he's still offering light bulbs and you can still buy light bulbs, but at the same time, through Signify, they are offering light as a service. So they are offering a model where you pay per looks. And one of their clients is Schiphol Airport, uh, which is one of the busiest airports in, in Europe. And that leads to a different incentive system, different dynamics. So Philips remains owner of the fixtures, of the installations, and the airport only is using the light. So Philips has all incentives to ensure that the light bulbs will last for a long time, so they're durable, they're easy to repair, they're easy to maintain. And after their first use phase, Philips is also responsible for the reuse or remanufacturing or recycling. Uh, and that really shows the, the power of a circular economy. This is a, a great example of a circular business model. So when we define it in a more theoretical way, we'd say it's based on, on three principles. It's, it's um, about eliminating waste and pollution. It's about keeping products and materials in use. And it's about regenerating natural systems. It's underpinned by a transition towards renewable energy. And, and it really is an approach to economic development that benefits people, society, and the planet. Well, it's, it's sort of incredible to think that waste, as you said, was built into the design process at some point. And now here we are desperately trying to figure out how we can reduce the amount of waste. And, and presumably, as you, as you just touched on there, um, when we think about circular economy, it, it's playing into addressing climate change and other environmental challenges like biodiversity loss and sort of obviously plastic pollution. Indeed, that's correct. So I think for each of those, and happy to go into detail, a circle economy will tackle the root cause. And let's take plastics, for example. What we see now, it's heavily, uh, the system, the current system is heavily built on extraction of finite resources, in this case, fossil fuels, production of, uh, in this case, packaging items, plastic packaging items, which are often single use. So it's a throughput model that comes with plastic pollution, as we all know, whether that's on land or, or in the oceans. In a circular economy for plastics, the idea is to rethink uh, that plastic system where you eliminate the plastic packaging that you don't need. So you still deliver your product, for example, as a food company, you still bring your product to your, to your client, to your customer, but you might eliminate the need for packaging altogether. Then 
you design the plastic packaging that you still need in such a way that it actually can be reused or it can be recycled. And then finally, you ensure that if you use that packaging, you circulate that packaging and the value it represents within the economy. So that's one example of a circular economy really going to the to the root of the problem and overcoming it by rethinking our system altogether. That you, on the one hand, have that economic benefit, but at the same time, also deal with the environmental and social uh, shortcomings. So now we know what a circular economy is and the work that you're doing at the foundation and also a few great examples there. Let's come to how private finance relates into it. So you obviously head up the finance program at the foundation, which aims to scale the finance available for the circular economy. Can you just talk to us about the interest you've seen from the finance sector in the work that you're doing? The foundation has been around for 10 years now, and the the interest is only increasing and the momentum around circle economy is increasing, both in the real economy and the finance sector. So obviously from a real economy point of view, and we're working with some of the largest corporates uh, in the world, um, there is a clear need for their investors, their financiers to understand what that shift means, how we can move away from the current extractive systems towards a circle economy. But equally, we see a great interest from investors in the topic of a circle economy, and that can come very uh, specific, such as the topic of plastics is high on the agenda. So we get um, a range of questions going from um, venture capital, private equity, focusing on particular innovations and how that might fit the system up to some of the largest asset managers, such as BlackRock, for example, with whom we work together, on what that shift of that sector might mean um, for understanding who's going to be the winner, who are going, well, who's going to be among the winners and who's going to be uh, among the laggards. Um, so in a nutshell, I think the, the momentum has been building. I'm very happy to share some numbers Please do share these numbers. Well, um, to give a short overview, if you look at the different asset classes within the finance sector, and, and let's start with capital markets, if you look at public equity funds, at the start of last year, so 2020, uh, roughly $300 million um, in assets uh, were managed through these funds. Today, we've got over $7 billion US dollars of assets managed. Again, admittedly, I think, small number, but the steep growth and the interest that we're seeing from a range of asset managers, so including BlackRock, but not just BlackRock, leading providers uh, across the globe is very encouraging. And if you then look at private funds, in the past four years, we saw a tenfold increase in number of venture capital, private equity, and private debt funds focusing on circle economy. If you look at the, the bonds, for example, uh, three years ago, two years and a half ago, there was no bond dedicated to circle economy. Now we've got over 35 bonds um, or part of the proceeds um, dedicated to circular economy, including some of the largest companies like uh, like a Google, like a, a PepsiCo, like an Adidas. Again, I think in, if you look from a global economy point of view, it's early days, but those steep growth numbers, that's very encouraging for an organization like us to see. And, and, and that is very much in line with the interest that we're noticing coming from investors. That's great. That's great to hear. Re- really good numbers there to back up, back up the claims that you were talking about. So when we talk about it on the finance side, we often split it into two things, into financial risks, but also into opportunities. You've touched on some opportunities there, and we'll come back to that later in a report that you've put out recently about this. But let's maybe start with risk first. Would you say that there's a sense that there is a financial risk to investing in firms that are not aligning with circular economy themes? And what are those risks, do you think? If we look at a few particular sectors, we can make it a bit more concrete. And I'm taking plastics again, given that it's 
it's, it's high on the agenda. Um, five years ago, together with McKinsey and the World Economic Forum, we published a report in which we've shown that in a business-as-usual scenario, there could be more plastics than fish by weight by 2050 in our ocean. And there's just one externality, but it captures uh, really well why urgent uh, action is needed. So if you, if you look at that plastic packaging system from a risk point of view, what you're seeing is that um, both business and business innovation, regulation, as well as um, uh, citizens are changing how they look at plastic packaging. And as a company operating, especially as a, as a large fast-moving consumer goods company, a large food manufacturer, this poses certain risks. There, there's the license to operate. And, and even just today, I saw on LinkedIn, there was one, one of the charts coming by where large, big brands were called out on the plastic uh, pollution that they are creating. So there's this license to operate. If you as a business manage to offer your products in a different way via a different business model that appeals to citizens that are increasingly aware of of plastic pollution, that obviously gives you a competitive uh, edge. There's also regulation. There's there's China's um, national sort, which is effectively banning the import of certain uh, plastic waste. So this this is a clear risk, and and one of the elements there is, for example, in the e, in the EU, where recycled content is going to be mandatory, uh, as one example. And then finally, that business angle. Uh, what we see is that we're that several innovators uh, are coming up with new solutions. So Again, there's a risk here that you, you're missing the boat. Um, so plastics is a great example. If you now zoom uh, zoom out and, and take a step back more broadly, if you think about extractive industries and often the, the negative externalities that come with those, with those extractive activities pose risks. And climate change is a great one. Uh, oil, uh, the, the oil industry and, and the stranded assets debate that's happening there. And then finally, to conclude, uh, we are working together with Intesa San Paolo, which is a European leading bank, um, as well as Bacona University, particularly on some of the emerging evidence behind that de-risking effect of a circular economy. So stay tuned, that will be will be published um, uh, soon. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Yes, we would definitely stay tuned for that. That sounds fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask you if you could share with us some examples of companies who were making the shift. But I have just a sort of a side question um, that was a sort of interesting just as an observation. You know, obviously, everyone sort of got really hot on reducing the amount of plastic and, and waste. And then along came COVID. <laughs> and Every time I went to a store, my apples were wrapped individually in plastic, um, presumably because you know people were really concerned about um, spread of disease and and health. Now, so I just wondered if you'd seen that tension play out. Yes, I mean that that very much resonates. I think we've seen um, uh, with the pandemic a bit of, uh, in first instance, we've seen an increase indeed of single use items for the reasons that you laid out. Even though some of them are actually perceived uh, reasons and not necessarily having an impact in in um, in reality, uh, but I guess for us the um, the more important message here is that looking at the businesses that we work with, they actually reconfirmed their commitment to the circular economy or even strengthened earlier commitments. So let me give you an example: Unilever uh, committed to reducing its use of virgin plastics. Um, Nestle committed uh, 1.5 billion Swiss francs to um, the uh, the, the purchase of recycled content, so making that recycling system work. Um, there's Danone uh, looking into how it's going to use it, its packaging and, and more broadly, actually, circular economy, regenerative agriculture elements that come with it. So across the globe, we see that there's 
um, reinforcement of, of earlier commitments. And in that sense, we're quite um, encouraged by the trend we see. And you asked for a few examples. So obviously, I already mentioned uh, some of the large food companies, but you also have smaller innovators. Uh, to give an example, there's uh, Miwa, which is a Czech company that offers um, reusable uh, packaging going from the producer to the retailer and attaches Internet of Things to it, as in some technology to track where what is. Um, so that, that's one example. But there's also Algrama, for example, Latin American innovator that offers uh, detergents via dispenser in reusable packaging. So both from a large corporate point of view and from a small innovator point of view, we see that activity being scaled up. Just just on these bigger firms, obviously you mentioned there Unilever, Nestle, even Danone. Do you think that do you think they're going far enough? Or do you think there is more that they can still do? We view that our work with those large corporates is essential. Often they're part of the problem and they should be part of the solution. I think it's fair to say if you look at the Nestle, which is, if not mistaken, the world's largest food company, you won't be changing overnight. But at the same time, it's also important to see how we can uh, put enough pressure to ensure that change actually is happening. And I would like to take our plastics program uh, in which we've developed the global commitment, which brings together uh, over a thousand organizations and and in total representing 20% of the uh, plastic packaging uh, produced globally. So it's it's a fifth of of that entire global market. So it's already sizable if you'd like to change a system. Every year we uh, produce a progress report which allows us, and it's transparent, it's open, data is public, so it allows us to track progress. And so I think from our point of view, we see those bright spots at those large companies or through those small innovators, but at the same time, uh, there still is quite some work for the more fundamental changes, like shifting your delivery model, which obviously is 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 challenging compared to increasing um, uh, recycled content to some extent. You know, what more can be done, do you think, to encourage firms to make that shift? I think, first of all, there's um, still lack of understanding or knowledge. I'd like to compare it to climate change, where often people understand how the energy transition is going to help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But roughly half of the story is about our production and consumption systems. And then secondly, there's also an element about uh, policymaking. And we've actually launched a report uh, last year on universal policy goals, where we lay out how uh, policymakers can better support uh, the shift towards a circular economy. Again, taking a comparison and and looking at climate change, if you think about subsidies going to fossil fuel extraction and use, and and sometimes they're hidden, sometimes they're they're quite uh, obvious. So it's a good combination of developing that knowledge um, at the companies, at the investors, as well as ensuring that there's that enabling framework, ensuring that policymakers understand the benefits of a circular economy and also design policies in order to support that shift. So we'll be coming to policies in more detail later. And I'm, I'm actually very excited to talk specifically about what policymakers can do in this big year of COP15 and COP26. It's crucial we have that discussion. But We've ran through the risks there. You've started talking as well, though, about some of the opportunities, which is the other side to it when it comes to private finance. Are there any particular successes that you can share where a company has embraced the opportunity and really shifted? Uh, definitely. Uh, I'll start with um, a sector, the fashion sector. It's uh, another great example of how that industry is shifting. And actually, uh, to give a number 
the second-hand uh, sale of fashion items is predicted to be larger before the end of the decade than fast fashion as a market. There is a shift in the way, and companies applying circular economy principles or running a circular business model are already getting the benefits. To give you a few examples, I think last week Etsy uh, announced it will buy Depop for 1.6 billion yep. US dollars, if I'm not mistaken. So that's one example of seeing a large company having that interest in a fashion resale uh, model. Um, earlier this year, a French luxury group, Caring, which owns Gucci, uh, invested in Vestiaire Collective, which is um, a platform, again, for secondhand fashion. Uh, other examples include the IPOs that we saw earlier this year by Poshmark and uh, ThreadUp. Again, great successes, successful IPOs. Um, both of them are online platforms that facilitate resale um, of, of fashion items. Beyond fashion, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few other examples one could be given. Uh, we've been working together with Renault. One of their most profitable plants is actually a plant where they remanufacture engines um, and they're able to offer them to their clients um, at a discount uh, or uh, 40% with the same warranty. So clearly you see that win-win. There's, there's no extraction or hardly any extraction needed. You remanufacture, you keep that value of that product, that material in the economy. Uh, I really appreciate that win-win situation that you mentioned there. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but uh, <laughs> it, um, I often think about, you know, you go to ta hotels and they say, please, re please reuse your towel as much as you can because we're looking to look after the, um, the environment. And I always think, well, absolutely, of course, I would naturally do that but you don't ever see a discount in yep. your hotel cost. And I always think, hang on a minute, I'm saving you some money as well as the environment. Where does that win-win come in? So I'm really I'm thrilled yep. with Renault for doing that. Well done, No, it's, it's a great example. And <laughs> in our view, thinking about circular economy and new circular business models, it should be exciting. It should be sexy. It should be convenient. It's not about that moral obligation, that moral duty to do less or have less fun it really is about redesigning how you create value and if you do so if you're regenerating natural capital through your business activity we'd like to see more of that business activity because you're replenishing ecosystems you're um, regenerating your soil to give an example um so I'm with you. I would still encourage people to use their towels uh, less in their case. But equally, I'd say, uh, let's come up with business models that are simply more convenient. Mm. I, I must say that circular economy business models should be sexy and convenient is the best description I've ever heard about it. And definitely going to be in the promo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I wanted to come back to something you mentioned earlier, and it was about, um, you know, you, you touched on the opportunities for the finance sector and the huge growth in the number of circular economy funds. Um, I think you mentioned 7 billion in AUM um, now. And yep. um, when I hear that, and then when I think of some of the struggles that companies are still having, I think about the potential for greenwashing that we've seen in ESG funds. I don't know what it'd be called in the circular economy, circular yep. washing or something. I don't know. So what if you can talk to us about, about that and whether that's a challenge right now and, and what you're seeing in terms of sort of working towards reducing that washing? I think we we have a bit of a nuanced view here. First of all, obviously, it's great to see that more and more people know the circle economy and know about their benefits. Because uh, clearly, 
like with greenwashing, you do want to label yourself as green because you understand the benefits. If all goes well, you actually are doing positive stuff. Similarly with circle economy, um, where we think circle economy goes beyond some of the more traditional greenwashing is that you shouldn't be doing this just for environment, environmental reasons. I hope it, it has been clear by now that there's a strong economic rationale and that's why you're doing it. So that's that's one angle we will be taking. If as a company you want to do circular economy washing, and then secondly, um, while we're scaling the work on financing the circular economy at the foundation, uh, we're also building a measurement of circularity performance. So uh, two years and a half ago, two years ago, we launched Circulitics, which um, still is the most comprehensive tool. It's a free tool. You can find all the information on our website to measure your circularity performance. Uh, to give you one example, H&M um, issued a sustainability-linked bond, 500 million euros early this year. Uh, heavily oversubscribed and one of the kpis they use was the use of recycled materials and i think that that's a great kpi it, it's only by making that transparent and especially in the sustainability linked loans or bonds where there's uh, where it's not as strict in terms of of uh, like like we have for example for the green bond principles i think it's great to have some leading companies showing what meaningful kpis are uh, and then it's about target setting and ensuring that that companies work towards those targets Right, so so far we've talked mainly around finance, but you did allude earlier to your universal circular economy policy goals and some of the policies that are coming out of China and and Europe. We all know that there is a large role for policymakers to play in this, but what does that role look like exactly? There's a few elements, and I think, well, first of all, uh, I'm happily promoting here our universal policy goals report that our policy team um, has published uh, earlier this year. Um, one element is, as a policymaker, setting direction and providing economic uh, incentives. Uh, for example, the circular economy is a key pillar of the EU Green Deal. Um, in Sweden, there's a tax break, tax break on product repairs. Um, so that's about setting direction and providing economic incentives. The second one is about uh, investing directly. And then there's an, another element about public procurement where you as a government actually set uh, a great example by having your circle economy uh, product requirements uh, for your procurement uh, in place and as such also uh, stimulate circle economy or the uptake of circle economy. Um, and you touched on it a bit there um, about the sort of use using sort of public sector investment to sort of move things along. Are there any examples you can give? I know that um, in the UK, um, there's a fund, um, I believe, supported by the Scottish government. There's one by the Welsh government um, that's uh, to help, um, I believe, small and medium enterprises in, uh, invest in becoming circular. <laughs> I'm sure if you phrase correctly there. But is there, are you seeing a lot of examples of that? Yes, we do. There's the Greater London Investment Fund, which is a uh, 100 million pounds fund of funds uh, that uh, aims to support economic growth, but also circle economy. Uh, it's 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 a loan and equity uh, fund. I think going beyond Lon uh, London more broadly, um, there's the European Investment Bank. Together with five European national promotional banks, they launched the Joint Initiative on Circle Economy, JICE. It's a 10 billion um, initiative. On the other side of the Atlantic, uh, there's a Circulate Capital. They have an ocean fund, uh, again, a blended financing mechanism 
and it's backed by uh, USAID. Uh, it's a uh, hundred million US dollars, if I'm not mistaken. So we see we see those um, those bright spots, uh, either development banks, blended finance, or, or actually governments uh, providing public finance directly to install infrastructure or to support innovation or to help scale existing circular businesses. I'd, I'd love to just ask something quickly on one of the individual ones you touched on earlier. This economic incentive for recycling of, of goods in Sweden, is that anything that you're seeing anywhere else? And what do you think stopping other governments replicating that? So, yes, I think we're seeing a different government level. So going from city level up to uh, supranational level, we see different initiatives. So we see a range of, of levers being pulled, not necessarily saying, oh, we're going to replicate that tax break on repair because for some reason that situation might not work. Um, but at least the recognition is there that circular economy and moving towards a circular economy can create jobs, can help upskilling, can help moving um, the, the burden or the opportunity from extraction of resources to provision of labor. What's holding people back? Um, again, there's, there's that knowledge element. People do not necessarily, or policymakers do not necessarily know the benefits, do not necessarily know how that's going to affect the, the, the further economy. And, and for example, one, one idea could be to really shift your tax system from labor to resource extraction. So now labor is heavily taxed, which makes it notoriously difficult to repair your toaster because you're going to pay more for repairing your toaster in terms of labor costs than it, it's going to cost you to buy a new one. So what's everyone doing? Obviously, it's like with the towels in the hotel, you're, you're going you're gonna to buy a new one. So that's one element where you could be thinking from a broader point of view, how can we uh, internalize the cost of negative externalities through policy? How can you put a price on that extraction of those resources? Similar aspects and also linked to climate change, obviously, from the greenhouse gas emission point of view, uh, are increasingly on the agenda. How can we create a level playing field and ensure that businesses that are doing the right thing actually get rewarded for it? Not necessarily by rewarding them directly, but at least by creating a level playing field and as such, allowing them to to fully play to their competitive angle. And just finally on this topic of public sector, if it does feel like where there has been a shift is a, a local government level. We've, we've seen some examples of cities starting to adopt circular economy principles um, can you share with us some of those examples? Yeah, definitely. Um, taking a step back, if you look um, at cities globally, about 55% of world population is currently already living in urban areas, and that's going to increase to two-thirds. They are already accounting for roughly three-quarters of natural resource consumption and four-fifths of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, moving towards a circle economy will bring benefits also at city level, they can tackle some of their challenges. They, on the one hand, will uh, create a more livable city with improved air quality, improved urban health, but also help uh, boosting the economic productivity. Now, if we look at what's already around, we are very proud to have announced earlier uh, last month, I guess, strategic partnerships with both New York and Sao Paulo. Uh, there's the New York Circular City Initiative which is about bringing together different uh, stakeholders, uh, creating a vision, a circular economy vision for the city, and then acting uh, upon that vision. They've identified 10 levers and are working towards it. We've done together with New York Aware Next uh, campaign, which was about fashion. 
and um, collecting old clothing in order to repair them and, and reuse them. If you look at a, a city the size of New York and the importance of fashion within New York, that's definitely, and, and then fast fashion, obviously, in the past, but we're also seeing that shift there. So that's clearly a topic and um, an economic and environmental opportunity that, that then links to that city. And then we also are, are partnering with Sao Paulo. Um, they are very much about, well, like any city, but especially Brazil, about food and the food system. So they, they are one of the first cities to sign the global commitment I was talking about. Obviously, plastic packaging is, is very closely connected to, to food. They are looking into regenerating natural system, enhancing local biodiversity. And they have plenty of initiatives on food waste and enabling uh, regenerative food production within the city. I, again, I think from a circular economy point of view, there's a range of levers here, but there are different ways. And urban farming uh, would, would be one of them, uh, which is part of that that set of, of levers that one can pull taking a circular economy framework. Obviously, we need cities that are pioneering, you know, New York, Sao Paulo, Amsterdam. But what would you say to any local leaders who are perhaps from a smaller city or a town who they're listening and they think, OK, New York, Sao Paulo, London, they're global cities, but we're smaller. What would you say to them? Yeah, very much like the question. I live in Ghent uh, in Belgium, and then you wonder. I mean, I, I like to live here. What would I like to see differently from a circular economy point of view? The exciting thing about the circular economy and applying its principles to your activities, whether that's a policymaker, a citizen, a business, is that it works at different levels. So yes, there's some uh, value to capture for the largest food manufacturer in the world, but equally, your local repair shop, which is run by one person, will benefit from that vision or uh, understanding how it, it can change its, its core activities uh, in line with circular economy principles. And that, that, that also is very similar for policymakers. So yes, you can point to a London and, and a New York and Sao Paulo and say, okay, there's, there's millions of people living there. But also in Ghent, um, to take my example, you could be saying, well, simply get clarity on your material flows. What's happening? What, what's being imported? How is the food system set up? How fragile is it? Can we strengthen it? How much are we tapping into the uh, the wealth of ecosystems around the city? And are we taking care of them? Are we rather than depleting? Are we regenerating them? How can we um, make that connection in the case of food, but also in the case of fashion, in the case of furniture, in the case of electronics? Do we know what type of material is flowing into the city? Then taking more of an infrastructure point of view, how's mobility organized? How are we leveraging the opportunity of shared mobility? Um, where are we on the energy transition point of view? And, and, and so on. So I think there's, again, there's um, a range of opportunities, policymakers at each and every level, whether it's a small village or a large uh, nation, can look into. And yes, the size of the project might differ, but applying circular economy principles uh, in itself is not going to be different. Right, so if anybody from my hometown of Stockport is listening, which has a couple of hundred thousand people in its population, there are no excuses, no excuses anymore. Yep. But Michiel, um, thank you so much for joining us. But before we let you go, there's a couple of questions that we always ask at the end of the podcast. The first one is, not for, for policymakers now, but for an individual person who's listening, what can they do to support this cause for a circular economy, either locally, nationally, or even globally? Again, a good question and a difficult one to answer because as an individual, you have your role to play within that system change, but you can't change the system uh, on your own. So I'd say as a citizen, 
for example, on plastic pollution, to take an example, and how we should be shifting, you can make your individual choices. And then secondly, it's about being vocal about this, putting pressure on both corporates, as well as putting pressure on policymakers. Um, On this, I just, obviously, um, there are your reports that are available to be read on this topic. EllenMacArthurFoundation.org is the website. But I feel like you're someone who would have a really good reading list on this topic. And so I wondered, um, and I know I'm putting you on the spot a bit here, but are there any books on this topic that would be helpful for us all to read? Or any that you really have inspired you or really captured the essence of, of the need for a circular economy? I guess, first of all, I, w- I would definitely refer to uh, the reports that we've put out. Um, I think for me personally, and it's already, it might be outdated, it has been years since I, I read it, but there's the, the, the Cradle to Cradle book. Uh, that definitely that idea of keeping materials within the loop uh, in a biological or technical cycle, at least that inspired me very much. Unfortunately, I've just got back from my holiday, um, so I can't read that book right now. But next time, Cradle to Cradle, it's it's on my list. Mikhail, the very, very final question then, before we let you go, we're asking everyone what they want to see emerge from COP15 and COP26 later this year. So either on a personal level or from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, what do you want to see coming out of those summits? So for COP26, I think for us and for me personally, it would be a success if we understand how the circle economy is a crucial part to deliver on our global climate targets. We have to look into how we produce and consume. A circle economy is a great framework to help us deliver. And that could be, for example, uh, through the um, nationally determined contributions as, as one way of, of really integrating it in, in the, the framework that, that's uh, linked to COP26. And then COP15, um, if understood well, it's likely that there is going to be some consensus internationally and, and some joint commit, commitments on protecting habitats and, and species at risk. So I think that's great to see. But again, we would like to go a step further. And what's currently missing or seems to be missing is an international commitment to address the biodiversity footprint of production and consumption. Again, how can we look at the core activities of our economy and ensure that rather than depleting soils, for example, uh, or uh, reducing biodiversity, they actually would regenerate natural system. They would enhance biodiversity. And again, the circle economy is a crucial part of the solution. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you. Some great recommendations, Sarah. And um, it reminds me a bit where we, very early on in when we began the podcast, we had John Elkington on to talk about regenerative economies and green swans. So it just made me remember that I should probably go back and reread that book as well. Um, So, um, Mikhail, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's such an interesting topic and such an important topic. Um, And thank you for for playing along with us and and sharing all of of the knowledge you have and great work at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation you're doing there. So congratulations and look forward to staying in touch on what you're doing. Well, Well, thank you. The pleasure was mine. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that was a fascinating episode as ever. Helen, what did you think? I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, and the story of Ellen MacArthur and the subsequent like passion for the circular economy, it's, I think it's really inspiring. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think about this a lot. There's a woman called Julia Butterfly Hill. Um, among other things, she lived in this 1500 year old California redwood tree for 
738 days. But she has this question, or at least it's attributed to her. I don't know if she actually said it. Um, And it's, when you throw things away, where do you think away is? And it's really, really stuck with me. Um, Every time I can't recycle something, I'd get quite upset because I know where it's going. It's just going in the land somewhere. So I was really sort of inspired listening to Mahil about, you know, the push for the circular economy um, and reduction of waste. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a great way to think about it, that quote that may or may not be from from Julia. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I'm honestly, I'm still thinking about one of the first things that, that Mahil said about light bulb manufacturers building them so they break after a few years. I mean, you often still hear accusations today of corporates doing that with with tech they're making, but you know, it, it baffles me that with all the conversations that we have today about recycling, about reusing, that there were companies that would do that, that would purposely do that and create that waste. But hopefully, hopefully that is a thing of the past now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hope so. I know what you mean. The amount of um, upgrades I have to keep buying, uh, technologically speaking, is always a bit baffling to me. Um, on the finance side too, though, sort of listening to my, it was it was kind of positive to sort of hear that the funding for the circular economy is is sort of building. Um, uh, and and I was really sort of inspired to hear about H and M's sustainability linked loan that was connected to sort of recycle fashion. Yeah, I think I think sustainability linked loans and sustainability linked bonds are. Great solution in general. I want to see more. Um, I speak to a lot of the companies we worked at the Institute about maybe they should think about doing one because having that corporate level KPI setting and, you know, if you meet it, then you get an actual financing benefit or if you don't meet it, you get a financing hit. I think it's just a really good way to build it in at, at the corporate level. Um, but I also, I also find it interesting that as always, the conversation came back to one of the biggest things we can do is educate people that's often just educating people and telling them about what they're doing and what they can do better. And, you know, hopefully this podcast episode and what we're doing here, but also their papers will, will help people to learn about this. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And maybe we should uh, have a um, podcast on sustainability linked loans, perhaps. Um, there we go. That, that's, yeah. a, that's a great yeah. idea for an episode. <laughs> Um, but that's all we have time for today. Um, sadly, we'll be back in July, however, with some great guests. Yep, and until then, thanks for listening once again to Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.